from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Book Chats showcase Berkeley faculty authors engaged in public conversation about their own recently completed books. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Catherine Flynn of the English Department discussing her 2019 book, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris. She is joined by Michael Lucy of the Comparative Literature and French Departments. So uh, the title of Catherine's new book is uh, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris. And uh, I've really enjoyed all I've been, I've been enjoying all I am still learning from this book. Um, so I think just it's one of those things that you know if you are a person who studies literature that Joyce was in Paris in the 1920s writing uh, some of Ulysses and then that Ulysses was published in Paris um, in the 1920s. But your book starts from a different uh, place. That's one of the exciting things about it. It starts from... Um, uh, a very short period of time that a much younger Joyce spent in Paris in, in 1903 and 1904, just a few months. And uh, so the first part of your book you spend showing how endlessly fruitful what happened during those few months was for the rest of Joyce's literary career. And um, that uh, one of the fascinating things is your ability to show how even when he was working on Finnegan's Wake, still what he experienced in those you know four, four it was four months yeah. in Paris, in 1903 was still something that he was, its, its implications were still unfolding in his writing. So that's kind of an amazing trajectory across the book. And then one of the other great things about the book was that it, it made you think of, made me think, since I'm always thinking about courses you could teach about French literature, that, that um, choice is a part of French literature. That's one of the things that your book uh, really shows and that um, it would be possible to teach a course in which the early Joyce, or some of early Joyce's writings would be put into um, dialogue with Baudelaire and Verlaine, and then Portrait of the Artist would be put into dialogue with Rimbaud. Maybe we'll talk about how you do that. And um, then certain parts of Ulysses could be put into um, dialogue with a book that almost no one reads anymore, and you make sound much more interesting, the Dujardin's book. Um, uh, um, and then, uh, that, um, then the big Circe episode of Ulysses could be put into uh, contact with Flaubert and Nerval and Rimbaud in really interesting ways. And then suddenly, towards the uh, fifth chapter of the book, it pivots, and instead of French literature's influence on Joyce, it becomes Joyce's influence on French literature. So then you'd be able to suddenly understand Aragon's Le Paysan de Paris in a new way because he had um, absorbed, the, say, the Circe section of Ulysses. And then in the final chapter, you come back to, um, say, the importance of somebody like Jarry for Finnegan's Wake. Um, so it's really fascinating to think about Joyce as a uh, part of the French literary canon in the way that you show him to be. And it was interesting, to, one of the ways maybe we can come to this when we get to the second half of the book, that you show that, in a certain way, uh, Aragon like Baudelaire came to Aragon through Joyce, that there was a way in which the transmission of French literature even passed through Joyce from French writers, from earlier French writers to later French writers. I think that's a really great um, 
uh, insight that the, and I think it, maybe the, one of the things that we can talk a little bit about would be when French literature gets transmitted, when, in the, when there's an Irishman in the French literary field and the French literature is being transmitted <laughs> through him, what happens? Um, so to me, that's one of the fascinating things that we get to at the end of your book. What happens to, say, Baudelaire when Aragon has to read him through somebody like Joyce? Yeah. Um, so let's see if we can get to there, but maybe we should start uh, yeah. back at the beginning about um, what happens to Joyce in those f uh, amazingly uh, productive few months that start in uh, uh, December 1902, right? Is that? Uh, yes. 1902 yeah. and into yeah. 1903. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you say there are three things, you, you divide it up into three things. One, he, he commits himself even more deeply to his reading of French literature. Two, he experiences Paris as the urban, an urban center full of commodity culture. And three, he experiences Paris as a, a strange kind of overwhelming sensory experience. And it's the, the three things mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So thank you for those questions and for your interest in the book and your very close engagement with it. It's really an honor to be here talking with you about it and to be invited by Tim to talk here. And thank you all for coming. Um, so yeah, to go back to the beginning of what you said, one of the fundamental aims of this book is to reshape how we understand Joyce. And um, Paris really unlocks a different Joyce and I think maybe the true Joyce. So people think of, of Joyce moving to Paris in 1920 as a fully formed writer, someone who's already a master, he's written portrait, he's written Dubliners, he's written a bunch of, a big section of Ulysses, and then maybe he writes Finnegan's Wake in Paris, people think, and it's, Paris is really a place he goes drinking. You know, that's kind of how people see Joyce in Paris, as an expat, um, with even less engagement than, say, Hemingway, who, you know, was really a part of Gertrude Stein's salon. Um, Joyce hung out with really minor figures and avoided all of the greats. Um, but what I discovered um, in looking at um, his earliest writings was that Joyce was oriented towards Paris as a very young man, um, even before he went there in December 1902. He was translating Verlaine. He was um, voicing Baudelaire. So he was kind of plagiarizing Baudelaire in conversation with Yeats when he was announcing his ambitions as a writer. And he was deeply invested in this project of a new kind of poetic prose that would give expression to experience in the big city. So Paris offered for Joyce um, an alternative to Dublin, Ireland, under the boot of the British, you know, in sort of now enthralled to a cultural nationalism, which was invested in reawakening mythological images from the past, the Irish language. Joyce really wanted to look to the future, and all of his student writings are about about Europe, about excitement of new um, discoveries, about literary and artistic innovations. So going to Paris for him was allying himself with the avant-garde as he saw it. Um, the writers he'd been reading, they were all dead or they'd moved on, mostly they were dead. But he was going to one of the most vibrant centers of artistic innovation in Paris, um, in, sorry, in Europe. Um, and then when he got there, I think um, all of his writings allude to or suggest that this was a huge shock to him, that it was absolutely overwhelming in sensory terms. He was very poor, he really struggled, he was very hungry. And so that combination of hunger, really being an outsider, in this center of consumption, I mean, Paris of 1902 was this kind of glittering showcase of commodity culture. 
but also from you know, people who write about Paris at the time, everything was on sale there. There was a feeling that you could, you could kind of buy anyone in a way, as well as this whole culture of prostitution that was you know, in circulation at every level of society. And so Joyce had been um, visiting prostitutes in Dublin, you might know that, um, and so he supposedly did um, go with streetwalkers in Paris, but this generated for him, or, or around this he generated some really interesting writing about um, what art is. So I think the, the, the impact of Paris on him posed the question of what art can be. Um, in this incredibly overwhelming environment, this really powerful place where the desires are worked on so profoundly, what role does art have? Does it have any uh, role at all? And so the first theory he comes up with is that art has to be a place of refuge from powerful affects like desire and loathing. It's a static place. It's a place where you contemplate the beautiful. It's very intellectual for him. But very quickly in Paris, over these four months, he goes through an evolution and realizes that art is something actually much more dynamic and much more based in the senses and in interaction. So he writes this account of women on the street, women on the boulevard that's very um, ambiguous. You don't know if you're, they're prostitutes or not. And the, the speaker um, wants to frame them as a certain type. But um, his sensory encounter with them, he smells their bodies, undoes any kind of objective separation he would like to claim and instead creates this kind of presence of um, human engagement and a kind of unreadability, sort of subtlety, um, a kind of experiential quality that eludes transactional relations. Um, when, I, when I read this piece with these questions in mind, I thought, oh my God, this is Joyce. This is Joyce appearing to us, you know, um, as we now know him. And so this, um, there were, uh, so the discoveries he makes in Paris and the problem fundamentally that he's confronted with, and this scene of interaction between people that occurs in a space where things are really mapped in transactional terms, but the encounter is, um, because it's, uh, is, me is mediated through the, the proximate senses, through smell, taste, and touch, through these um, senses where you can't really have a distance. You're, you're taking the person in, you're, you know, the boundaries are being eroded, this encounter becomes a really important aesthetic scene for Joyce. And he rewrites that encounter over the course of his whole career, um, thinking about new ways to cast it, new literary forms to present it in, new ways of developing it. And uh, it becomes some, a question, an answer to the question of what art is, an involving answer, and an answer that is also a retort to the deformations of experience under capitalism. Um, especially erotic relations. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, I mean, we can. I'd love to talk through the various cases then that you you brought up. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we would, could just talk a little bit more about so the um, you the terms that you start using in um, the first chapter where you're talking about his time in Paris are that he finds himself in an immersive environment. And then the, one of the key um, terms in your book is sentient thinking. So yeah. this idea that yeah. thought happens yeah. in the in in yeah. the body rather than in the mind, and yeah. that that produces a desire for an embodied aesthetic practice, right? And one of the things you say is um, that this produces a thinking. Oops. Yeah, this produces a thinking that evades the conscious intentions of the subject as it occurs through material and involuntary processes. Yeah. 
And so that's, to me, one of the fascinating things I was think, trying to think through as I, I, as I read through your examples. So if you, as a writer, are coming to a, a writerly practice that is dealing with sentient thinking, which is supposed to be below the level of conscious intention, then what, how, what is the artistic practice that mm -hmm. is related to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a great question, um, very meaty question. Um, so, uh, I, um, so in uh, teasing out Joyce's relation to, to Baudelaire and to the prose poem, so Baudelaire wanted to, he announced a new genre, but declared his failure to write in that genre of a poetic prose that would respond to experience in the city that would be musical, um, but without rhythm and rhyme. And, uh, and in the, his um, prose poems, these Paris prose poems, it's a collection he thinks of failures, but they're extremely interesting vignettes, experiential vignettes um, in Paris. And in one of them, The Confession of the Artist, he says that he fails. He wants to, he's in a duel with beauty and he fails. And he says, um, Things think through me, or I through them. Um, and the me quickly disappears. And so there's, um, within this context of Paris, what Baudelaire is saying, I argue, um, is that standard cognition doesn't really work in the street of the modern city. When you're being bombarded with um, uh, sensory appeals, with various um, demands, with, um, when you're registering various desires, this isn't a space of contemplation. It's not a space of philosophical argumentation. So Baudelaire even says, syllogisms, deductions, they, they don't work. Um, they no longer work. And so what is this new way of thinking? What could it be? And so things think through me or I through them. Um, I think that for Joyce, this becomes, it, Joyce develops the stream of consciousness as this, um, mode which registers how the world impacts on you and how you're thinking in kind of small fragments during those impact or in between those um, sensory events. And that this kind of thinking isn't, as you say, organized consciously. It's not controlled consciously. It's not ordered in the way that kind of thought classically is thought to be. Instead, it's, um, in a process of evolution that's almost haphazard, depending on what it encounters. So it's kind of associational. If you think of Bloom's, if you're familiar at all with um, Ulysses, um, Bloom is constantly bouncing off, you know, his thoughts are bouncing off what he's noticing and what he's remembering. And this becomes a kind of, um, a, a, a sort of a successful way of negotiating the urban environment, um, of eking out some kind of autonomy, not as some separate subject, but in a kind of immersed situation. And so in some ways, Joyce is a kind of philosopher, but he's, um, he philosophizes through art. So art becomes the way of conceiving of a new kind of cognition. So if we typically separate thinking and sensing, um, that separation doesn't work anymore in this new environment. And sentient thinking is my coinage, um, is a kind of thinking that happens um, amidst this bombardment and through it, actually, so that um, the mind no longer needs to be separated. In fact, it is triggered by, in a positive way, um, prompted by, um, kind of fed by um, stimulus. So Joyce said, or Joyce writes in the Lestragonians chapter, episode eight, um, uh, Bloom thinks, never know whose thoughts you're thinking, <laughs> which is really a kind of sign of 
how porous we are. Um, the notion of the kind of um, secluded philosopher is no longer relevant to the modern urban individual. Um, and this is what Baudelaire was talking about in, in, um, in, in proposing the form of the genre of poetic prose. He talked about the innumerable encounters of the, the big city. Um, and so this desire to create an art that would respond to this. And, but, so in my book, I, I argue that Joyce comes as slowly, builds it up gradually, um, piece by piece, and that stream of consciousness is kind of midway. Um, so he starts off with you know, uh, this strange sensory encounter on the boulevard. Later, it's a kind of sentient thought you know, that Stephen Dedalus notices that he's saying things that he's not in conscious control of, or he says one thing that is actually a really interesting blend of um, two poets, um, John Nash, um, and uh, who's writing during the time of plagues, um, Litany in the time of plagues, and, uh, and Rambeau's Voyelle. So the poem that starts off, black A goes through the vowels and assigns them pretty arbitrarily, different colors. Um, Stephen weds these two lines of poetry without thinking and exclaims them in response to this woman who walks by him, a woman who he's kind of in love with, but really desires, it's a very complicated relationship. And the meeting of um, the scent of her body, and it's a very bodily, it's a, it's a smell, but a beautiful smell. Like it's not artificial like a perfume, it's the product of her body, this distilled odor and dew is the phrase, meets this line that he declaims, or he responds, and it's like the words and the scented air uh, meet. Um, and this is a kind of aesthetic event. Um, Stephen berates himself. He says um, something like, "Can I, you know, I can't trust my, I can't trust my mind, or I can't trust my thinking." And it's true, but you know what? That's overrated. <laughs> um, that this this process of interaction is actually much more meaningful because it gives them some way out, actually, of the transactional impasse that they've been in, where. Stephen wants to sleep with Emma, and Emma can't sleep with Stephen because you know it'll destroy her value on the marriage market. And even though she really wants him, so that they're kind of at loggerheads. Um, but this moment is a moment of pleasure um, and a moment of beauty, and it's this joyful um, a, a, the possibility of joy that is spontaneous, that is experiential, that's collaborative that really interests Joyce and is at the kind of center of his aesthetic exploration um, right through. Um, and in some ways culminates in Finnegan's Wake, but the joy then is, happens between readers and the book. Um, this is my argument at the end, that um, this is no longer about witnessing an artistic event as represented in, in literature, but instead about having some kind of aesthetic encounter with a set of readers through this book where that offers you so much um, and so much that seems a little bit like gobbledygook, you know, this sort of massive amount of stimuli that, um, you know, you have to kind of work to process. Uh, but you're also working to process the responses of other people too. So it forms a kind of um, aesthetic collectivity, kind of um, sociality around reading. But that, that's, that's at the end. So there's this, the book is very, um, it really has a chronological narrative and it really shows this is the, another big thing that, or to come back to my first point, that we see, you know, people say, oh, you know, you know Joyce, he's this kind of genius. We don't know how, we don't understand. It's intimidating, have to let go of, you know, I just don't want to even engage. But to see Joyce kind of struggle and come up with um, sequentially more and more interesting 
uh, responses to this problem is to see him as someone who's really kind of, um, he's struggling, you know, he's really working hard. And um, it, there's a huge amount of dedication that you see in this project. And uh, this is something I think that's um, it's very, uh, it's, in, it's endearing and impressive in a different way. You know, it's not like he just woke up the age of 18 and started hammering out, you know, masterpieces. There's a lot of, um, I mean, there's suffering in the earlier period, but then there's just a lot of thinking, um, yeah, a lot of struggling, yeah. So how about, can, can we spend a little more time on, on that scene at, uh, that you talk about in A Portrait of the Artist? Because um, you say there that Joyce, Joyce is using Hambo's poetry in conceiving of Stephen's somatic art. Yeah. Right? right? And the somatic art is something that Stephen almost engages in, as you just said, kind of unwittingly, like Emma walks by, yeah. The smell happens, and somehow the smell is the cause of um, a, a little prose poem that happens on the page, but also somehow in his mind in which um, Nash and Hambo are, are, are blended together. And then you say that Stephen realizes that he has been involved in a bilateral aesthetic exchange, which is a kind of a really interesting formulation. And so I, I, it just seems like there's Joyce is there, Stephen is there, and also Emma is there. But I, um, I was curious what, if you could talk about that, but also like, what is Emma's part in yeah. the aesthetic exchange? Yeah, 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 because you could say, oh, she's just the body and he's the mind or something. And, but in some ways that, that would um, imply or assume that the mind is superior to the body. And um, uh, Emma's part is um, actually fundamental because uh, Emma's body is um, capable of... Um, distilling um, something to create this odor and dew that he smells in the air is actually involved in an aesthetic process. So in Paris, the later definition that Joyce came out with for um, art is the um, uh, intellectual or, oh, I can't remember, hang on, I have to look it up, but it's the physical, physical or intellectual, um, it's both physical and intellectual. Um, yeah, art is the human disposition of sensible or intelligible matter. So sensible or intelligible. So he's taking his terms from Kant, actually, um, or from Hegel, I mean, where Hegel says that art is the um, sensible deployment of intelligible matter. It's kind of truth embodied in semblance. This is Hegel's understanding of what art is. But Joyce puts sensible and intelligible together as alternatives. and. Um, so Emma is an artist according to Joyce's own definition. And her artistry is what triggers Stephen. So Stevens is dependent on her. Um, so in some ways it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of like a happening in a way, an art happening. But the way that um, Emma's body is performing actually is in some ways, uh, or very similar to one of the lines in Rambo's Voyelle poem, which is um, black, a is the, um, the buzzing of flies around um, cruel stenches, gulfs of shadow. <laughs> so this is very weird. It's a very, very strange poem. It's a really radical poem in that it rejects many of the kind of central values of aesthetics. Um, you know, cruel stenches, how is that beautiful? Um, it doesn't explain itself in any way. It's, uh, it's really kind of an arbitrary deployment of um, very strange um, sensations that force the reader to repeat it over and over. This kind of buzzing 
becomes in, in some ways enacted by the readers. They're like, well, how could this be? What is this black A? You know, um, so that this buzzing of, of flies, of black flies around cruel stenches, gulfs of shadow. Uh, why did I say it in such a sing-song way? I think it's because it's like so, it's kind of filthy. Um, is, um, is what Stephen does in response to Emma's body, actually. Um, so his line, he says, darkness falls from the air. And uh, he realizes that it should be, um, uh, darkness falls, it should be brightness falls from the air. This is the line from Nash. Brightness falls from the hair, actually, is John Nash's original line. Um, and so Stephen changes brightness falls from the hair to darkness falls from the air. And then he berates himself about this black vowel um, and uh, how you know it bothers him, this black vowel that he sounds. So it's a very interesting reenactment of, um, of the poem Voyelle. And Joyce is extremely good at taking a kind of iconic moment in a previous great writer's work and reimagining it, re-inhabiting it, repurposing it. And this comes back to your earlier um, point or question about um, teaching a course, you know, that you could really see Joyce as, um, you could teach him as someone who's really taking up a whole set of, um, of, of French writers, also European writers, but also writers who themselves are taking up other writers. So for example, just to shift to another example you brought up, his relationship to Nerval. So Nerval was a um, 19th century visionary writer who um, died in an insane asylum. And uh, his writing is extremely powerful and was itself very influential in, in French writing and was reimagined by Rimbaud. Um, and Joyce then reads both of them. But Nerval himself is um, reconfiguring scenes from Goethe and also Dante, so um, the Divine Comedy. So this um, journey through purgatory, um, or hell, purgatory, and heaven, becomes reimagined by Nerval in um, Les Nuits d'Octobre, in this like heaven and hell of, um, of Pantin, the, the underworld of Paris. And uh, it then becomes reimagined by Rimbaud as une saison en enfer, a season in hell. Um, and then Joyce himself writes the Circe episode, which is a, is a sort of descent into the, the underworld where everything gets inverted and where the hallucinations that both Nerval and Rimbaud are so interested in and devise new means to represent are um, also, also feature. And uh, so this very strange chapter of Ulysses, the longest chapter by far, the Circe episode set in the night town area, is very closely related to French visionary literature and to a literature that's... Um, exploring the, the modern city, 19th century Paris, as a place that, um, in which political hope has died and which um, progressive energies have been redirected into spectacle. Um, and um, there's a kind of sense of the material promise of the world, but something that is um, foreclosed by new capitalist relations that have taken over and have supplanted the Republican um, values of the revolution. Yeah. So I'm just being mindful of the time. And we, yes. so, so maybe I'll just ask one or one and a half more questions. So um, <laughs> the, the, the Circe episode is the pivot of the book in a certain way, because it's, as you just so nicely explained, incredibly intertextual in its relationship to European literature. But then its reception um, within Paris is, um, as you show, 
extremely important, right? And so um, one of the uh, key concepts of your book that comes out of your reading of the, of the Circe episode is the idea of an exploding vision, right? And yeah. the way that exploding vision relates to um, what's called an image body space. Uh -huh. um, uh, and yeah. this is for you really important for um, the way that Joyce impacts somebody like Louis Aragon and then um, through Louis Aragon, some, somebody like Benjamin, right? Yeah. So do you want to yeah. talk a little about, yeah. a bit about exploring, uh, exploding vision in yeah. relation to yeah. sense thinking? Yes, yeah. So this is uh, Joyce's own term, exploding visions, um, to describe the technique of the Circe episode. So the episode is written in the form of a play script. Um, and it uh, involves a kind of weird scenario in Nighttown, the red light district of Dublin, which was quite extensive um, and had many, many prostitutes um, for various reasons. But, uh, and so every now and then, Bloom is um, some kind of hallucination or waking dream is triggered by something that someone says or something he touches or sees or feels. And uh, this, these hallucinations can go on and on. Um, and then he comes back out of them and returns to the world of the, the, the red light district, to the brothel. And uh, so this um, kind of spectacular form or this um, um, visionary form is derived from Nerval and Rimbaud. Um, but Joyce really explicitly, um, or more explicitly relates it to the way that capitalism structures relations. So, Prostitution is the most extreme form in, uh, of capitalist distortion of, of erotic relations. Um, so Nighttown for Joyce in Circe is a place where the productive and reproductive powers of human beings are harnessed for profit. And they're, they're possessed, they're exploited, and even desire is instrumentalized. Um, and uh, it's, so Bloom goes in there with in some ways, you know, the, the answer of the stream of consciousness is a really nice one, but stream of consciousness maybe isn't enough for such an intense scenario. And uh, this, these waking dreams become, in a way, a kind of a, a sort of um, explosion of um, the stream of consciousness, where associations don't just lead on to a thought, but actually balloon into whole fantasies, these waking dreams. But the, and then are ended again by another kind of sensory encounter. But the, um, this place becomes um, a place of experimentation for Bloom, where instead of you know, just going along with things like a normal guy, like as you're supposed to under the rules of Nighttown, where you're supposed to want to have sex with women, you're supposed to want to buy their, rent their bodies, um, and also Blazes Boyland figures as someone who wants to plow Molly, you know, to kind of use her body in a productive way. Um, Bloom instead is involved in all kinds of like non-reproductive sexual activities, masturbation, voyeurism, spanking, um, you know, dressing up, just uh, uh, coprophilia. And what all of these relate to in the end is some kind of um, curiosity about pleasure and joy and the joy of the other, the, to explore the joys we each enjoy, he says at one point. Um, and so in this intense environment of um, exploitation, Bloom um, embodies a whole set of alternative values, actually, which are about, um, about empathy, but also about a focus on um, transient emotions and positive ones, and also um, ephemeral sensations. So something that can't be bought, can't be accumulated. Um, and so 
Aragon, so Joyce writes the Circe chapter in Paris in 1920, and it balloons out of any kind of normal shape or size for the novel. Um, and largely because, I argue, this return to Paris, you know, reinserts him in the, in the scene that prompted his whole project in the first place. And he, all of the characters of Ulysses are, appear again in Circe in, you know, strange dreamlike form. Um, so it's in a way he's, he's sort of re-examining everything he's already written through this new, more intense lens. Um, but he's, when he writes, he, so in Paris in the 20s, early 20s, Joyce is already becoming famous in literary circles. And so there are readings. The book is published, as you said, in 1922 by Sylvia Beach's um, imprint, Shakespeare and Company, attached to the bookstore. And people are starting to read it. And one of them is Louis Aragon, um, one of the earliest surrealists. And, um, you know, in my dissertation, I was like, oh, it's funny that they're so similar. <laughs> but I didn't put it together. But, like, Louis Aragon actually visited Shakespeare and Company. His English was excellent. He could have, you know, he, he also was a huge fan of Joyce. And um, his novel, Paris Peasant, Le Paysan de Paris, is extremely similar to Circe and revisits all of those terms in a slightly shifted mode. So Aragon's book, it, Aragon's narrator is more interested in the um, prostitute's experience and in their, in how their, their eroticism, their interest in sensuality, acts as some kind of buffer to the, just the traffic of commerce. It's a sort of blocking point. And this is how he imagines the waking dreams. He reimagines them. Walter Benjamin then um, moves to Paris, moves in the same circles, gets to know Louis Aragon, and is supposed to write about surrealism for German journals, and um, is prompted by his book to begin the Arcades project. So he literally says he, can't, he has to put the book down because it makes his heart beat really quickly when he's trying to read it in bed. And this was the beginning of the whole of the Arcades project. And so Benjamin then begins to think of the prostitute as a figure who's positioned at the threshold of dream energies and the surrealist artist as well, as, as a similar figure, and someone who's capable of um, accessing this, the potential in society, this transformative potential. He, he changes his mind in various ways, and he kind of turns against them, but he then, he turns this kind of physical encounter, this erotic encounter, into something in the surrealism essay that he describes as um, an image body space, where... Um, consciousness is no longer present at all, and where the collective is shaped like matter um, by this sort of sensory experience, so that it becomes like um, yeah, just physical matter to be shaped. So the kind of problematic, the problem of the individual, the kind of bourgeois individual, is is evacuated in this scene where people lose their individual consciousnesses and are acted on, like say, you know, in the the, the um, work of art essay, the workings of um, the rhythms of film on an audience. It's kind of a similar idea. So in some ways it's problematic um, because of the total evacuation of any kind of agency or consciousness. And Benjamin then moves on to thinking about the arcades as a place of encounter with objects that spark um, sensations and ideas and transformative energies, both for individuals but also for the reader. In the, in the form of, of um, the Arcades project, this sort of very accretive encyclopedia. Well, it's, it's not organized like an encyclopedia, but it's a kind of massive collection of um, objects. So it's hard to kind of summarize this, um, this kind of lineage in a couple of minutes, but um, 
Joyce here is really a nexus um, for French literature and for critical theory uh, at one of its crucial moments. Um, and it's really interesting to see him as a kind of thinker, you know, as someone who's producing ideas and producing literary forms that act as machines for thinking, to use Bertolt Brecht's phrase that he, he said to, um, he said to Walter Benjamin when they were in dialogue that, I like this choice, he produces machines for thinking. And they're saleable, he said, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But um, so this is um, a very dynamic, um, this is another element of how dynamic this, this kind of literary scene is. Yeah. So I think we should take some questions now. Um, there is one more stage in your process which gets you to Finnegan's Wake, but maybe somebody will ask a question where okay. you can talk about Okay, Finnegan's that's the Wake. half question there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm used to thinking of the sort of uh, in, huge inflation uh, out of reality and then deflation back down and back again uh, that's so uncontrollable in Circe as being uh, a lot like uh, Flaubert's temptation yes. of St. Anthony. Yes. Um, and I can, I can guess at some reasons why you might want to correct that particular yeah. analogy, but yeah. I'd love to hear, yeah. hear, hear your take on it. Thanks uh, for that question. So um, Flaubert is actually, I do, ooh, ooh. <laughs> wow, it could have been a spill. Um, so, you know, funnily enough, Flaubert does in fact feature in the Circe chapter and the temptation of St. Anthony. And uh, because that is also a novel written in the form of a play script. And it features waking dreams. It features a series of, as you say, these, um, hallucinatory experiences. And uh, I think there's a really crucial moment for Joyce in, um, in, that novel, in Flaubert's novel where um, there's an opposition between this free-floating matter that the devil gives Saint, Saint Anthony, this image of the world as this, this shifting place where everything can be anything. And, and then God intervenes at the last minute. The face of, of Jesus appears in the sun in the disk of the sun and um, testifies to divinely ordained essences, that the world is nameable, there are souls, there are identifiable things. And Anthony is like, okay, he's saved from this, like, this plight of, you know, loss of, loss of himself. You don't know in the end, like, whether this is kind of another funny moment in, in Flaubert's novel, you know, because the novel itself is, it's crazy. Um, it's very hard to take that seriously, but nothing else, um, you know, you can't really take any, you don't know what to take seriously. But what Joyce does is take that image of Jesus in the disk of the sun and turn it into an image of commerce. So Bloom in Circe looks up and sees um, the face of a pharmacist who he's bought a bar of soap from in the disk of the sun, and the pharmacist looks down and tells him the price of the soap. And so this is a new world now, um, a world where instead of divinely ordained essences, we have prices that are dictated, or, you know, by um, shopkeepers. And uh, yeah, yeah, but it's, I think that he, it's a crucial, it is a crucial text for him, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> you're closer, Francine, yeah, yes. You have it. Oh, do you, did you want to ask a question? Okay, go ahead. No, thank you. Um, where, where does a consideration of modernity mm. fit into this? Yeah. Um, 
because this idea of the, of the sensual that you're presenting, which you know I subscribe to that, and that's great. I think of Simmel. I think of a space between Simmel and Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. And I think about the intensity of the modern yeah. that's running not only through Joyce, yeah. but everything he must run in, be running into in Paris yeah. at this time. Absolutely. I mean, it's, they're, they're all dealing with this, a similar challenge, actually, the same challenge in a way, of um, how to recuperate human experience in the modern city under the pressures of capitalism. And Zimmel has an idea of encounters between people as um, very fleeting. You know, Simmel is really about um, looking um, and uh, sort of um, a kind of visual negotiation between, um, I'm really gesturing as the <laughs> coincidentally, um, as the, you know, a it's a space of kind of visual negotiation. Um, whereas for Joyce, I think he understands, or he understands it differently in that the modern city is a place of spectacle, of um, looking and admiring and desiring, but it's also a place of um, where the other senses are activated. And they're activated in positive and negative terms. So smell can actually be an incredible lure, like an overpowering, um, uh, lure to consumption. But if you start thinking about um, encounters between people, it becomes something different. Um, and uh, I think that it really is about this problem of modernity as, say, enforcing a kind of ratio on people. That, that uh, all of their thoughts will be governed by instrumentality, instrumentalization, calculation, Reification. I mean, these are very critical theory terms, you know, the very Frankfurt School terms. All about kind of counting and looking. You know, and looking, you can really count when you look, but when you smell, it becomes quite difficult. And so it's about quantification of, exist of experience. And this is the sort of dilemma that a lot of the Frankfurt School thinkers are grappling with. And Benjamin is very different in that he thinks about erotic connections and desire and sensations that evade um, cognitive control. And in this, I think he's really, um, he is, he really gets this from Joyce, um, this alternative uh, approach to the problems of the city, um, a kind of uh, looking at it through a different lens, a much more kind of sensual, um, um, embodied sort of um, uh, sense. Yeah. So maybe I can s slip something in here, and then we can take Harsha's question. Yeah. Um, in, uh, so it's interesting the way that uh, you talk about Benjamin in chapter five, and then in chapter six, you move on to Finnegan's Wake. And it's interesting to think how uh, 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 you might think about Finnegan's Wake as a different realization of something like what the Passagenwerk was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in, in the, um, the, the theme that's been running throughout the book is it, uh, that comes up, especially in the Finnegan's, Finnegan's Wake chapter, isn't about the sense of smell, but it's about digestion, the, yeah. the metaphor yeah, of yeah, digestion. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in fact, the things that were so interesting to me about that last chapter were the collage nature of the text, yeah. what you call deformative, heterogeneous deformative and superimposed collage in the yeah. text. Yeah. Which, and the result is that, as you say, I love this passage, the text becomes a kind of digestive tract uh -huh. in which we, as readers, are active, responding to it with associations, puns, and sonic transformation. Yep. Right. So maybe you yeah. could talk about um, yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, the, um, so through the book, 
various processes are happening in, in Bloom's body. You know, he is digesting, like never know whose thoughts you're thinking. The mind becomes a stomach, but also the digestive system is, you know, active and impinging on various experiences. Um, sentient thinking is a kind of digestion. Uh, and um, he thinks about microbes too, how microbes cross boundaries between people. And all of those tropes, I think, are reimagined again in Finnegan's Wake, where um, the book itself is, um, forces us to become like the, um, the, uh, the cheese mites that Bloom thinks about in the lunchtime episode that give cheese its flavor. Um, cheese, a mighty cheese, he says, eats all but itself. <laughs> eats all but itself. And so Finnegan's Wake is an you know, extremely difficult book. It, well, it refuses um, synopsis, or any synopsis is just ridiculously reductive. And so we're kind of plunged into this um, uh, overwhelming verbal environment that um, is also referring, uh, referring to uh, all kinds of physical facts and, um, and uh, events. Um, and so this is something that is, um, uh, requires us to activate it. So that is the matter that we are bringing to life. Um, so it's a very different relationship to a text. Um, it's a, a much more active, immersed one that, in which there's no outside or the outside doesn't make sense. Um, just as the kind of digestive tract is this sort of processual um, series of events where uh, it's, not, it's not really, um, it's not a narrative or any kind of um, clear single, um, yeah. clear single um, event. Yeah, yeah, Harsha. <laughs> so my question is about what is um, universal and what is particular about the Paris in your story. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, it's building a little bit on, on uh, Francine's question. Um, so you focus primarily on Paris as a kind of urban sensorium, right? With productive of certain kinds of sensory yeah. stimuli and certain modes of sociability. And you also suggest that these are modes of sociability and, and forms of stimuli that could essentially be found under conditions of advanced capitalism in any number of major metropolitan yep. centers. Yep. And that makes me think about what Paris brings to someone like Joyce that could not be um, experienced elsewhere. Yep. And um, one you know, factor that, that came to mind, which I think is true for many provincial or peripheral intellectuals is not only Paris as a place to overcome the perceived provincialism of their native land, but also as a, as a place by which to bypass the, most, the more obvious choice of the imperial metropole, which would be London in Joyce's case, yeah. or, you know, or Madrid or Vienna or St. Petersburg for other intellectuals. Yeah. But I want to push it a little further. I'm interested in the question of what particular history, literary history is what you've really focused on today, but also urban history uh, Paris makes available. When one thinks of the story of Parisian modernity, it's generally about a series of sort of restructurings of the built environment and the position of the artist as flaneur in a hesitating between a kind of complicity in these transformations, but also witnessing and in fact ultimately yeah. Uh, seeking a place to resist these transformations. Right? Yeah. That seems to be in some ways, according to at least Benjamin, the story of, of Paris, Parisian modernity from, say, Benjamin to Aragon, right? Yeah. And so my question is, Joyce is someone radically, in some ways, external to this story, 
but who's inserting himself into it. Is there a sense in which Paris is a kind of deterritorialized space in which a certain kind of urban fantasy can be experienced, which is not specific to time and place? Or is it really part of the story of, of rootedness in a particular series of restructurings that go back to Osman? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, another very meaty question. Um, okay, I've got about like minus 30 seconds to answer. Um, so, uh, Yes, Paris is not London, it's not, and it's not an imperial centre for Joyce. Um, it's importantly, I think, for an Irishman, a centre of republican values, um, something that you know, Irish people were striving for um, for a long time, and, which, and it, was a, it was a historical mecca for Irish people, and often a place of flight for them. So there is this kind of, and the, the, it's, it's a city that um, bears the history of uh, a series of social political transformations as well, even though some of those are erased by Haussmann's um, transformation of the city, um, the, the new boulevard structure, the monumentalization of the city, the spectacularization of um, social life that goes along with it. And that is, I think, unique to Paris at that moment. I mean, there was, you know, London would have also been a, a, a place of commodity consumption um, that was very powerful. However, it wasn't designed as a stage for that, as a kind of display case for that. I mean, stage is a better way of putting it, where um, social life in Paris became extremely extroverted. It became very much about you know, appearing and encountering on the street and about reading people on the street. And so um, the whole culture of prostitution, for example, there was you know, a spectrum of prostitutes who circulated on the street, and some of them passed as normal women until you know the, the right moment occurred and so there's a whole um, set of encounters on the street that are extremely important in Paris um, and diffused throughout the city instead of being in like East End or in the in the red light area of Dublin um, so that's also extremely important and I think unique um, Paris is unique in that way but Paris is also um, as a kind of well, not hyperbolic, but an extreme instantiation of commodity consumption, it's something that teaches Joyce how to recognize it in other places. So when Joyce goes back to Paris, he reuses the description of the women on the boulevard to describe one of the main streets, the main um, fashionable streets in Dublin. So Paris allows him to see in Dublin what is relatively underdeveloped, but actually insidious. So it becomes a kind of place of learning um, for Joyce, um, and uh, then Joyce goes on to be able to recognize that um, anywhere. And so when he uses, say, Dujardin's novel, it's a very strange, well, it's, it's a novel that invents the stream of consciousness, but is quite boring and tedious and kind of silly, because the guy is so caught up in every single thing. Should I order the chicken? Hmm, this wine looks good. Uh, you know, it's this really kind of low-level consumer thinking. Um, Joyce is able to, really transplant that into Dublin of Ulysses without, without it seeming jarring at all, because this is the lifestyle a person of means can have in any of these cities, um, any of these European cities. Yeah. I think we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs>